I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Utah's best athletes count on flexibility, speed, strength. And the Jazz pick up their 22nd assist. So they count on University of Utah help. Brielle Soleil puts this game away. And so can you. Leading doctors, a world-class environment, award-winning innovation, care to be great. 14 unanswered by the Utes. University of Utah Health, caring for Utah's best and yours. Schedule your appointment now at uofuhealth.org slash care to be great. Hello, everyone, and welcome into another special edition of the Crimson Corner Podcast and the KSL Sports Front Page. Glad to have you along for the ride. I am your host and Utes Insider, Trevor Allen with KSLSports.com, and I am excited because I haven't talked to this guy. I think I talked to him once since I came over to KSL, but I've gotten to know him through through past jobs, and I really think of him as a good friend, Pac-12 network analyst, Fox Sports college basketball analyst, Stanford All-American, and most importantly, Pac-12 Hall of Famer, Casey Jacobson, joining me here on the KSL Sports Front page. Casey, how are you, man? Trevor, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for inviting me to do this with you. I would say the most important thing about my bio is that I'm a hashtag girl dad. I'm a, I'm a father of three daughters, and yes, I am surviving. One well, day to- I mean, it probably wasn't easy during the whole COVID-19 pandemic, right? No, it was not easy, but I love my girls. There you go. So first off, Casey, when you heard the news that after 10 years, Larry Kraskoviak would no longer be the head coach of the Running Utes, what was your reaction? Um, so I, I, I like Larry. Um, you know, it's interesting, Trevor, as a broadcaster for the conference and for college basketball in general, you do get to know some of these coaches really well. Now, as you know, some of these coaches are very welcoming broadcasters and some of them are flat out jerks <laughs> and they're like, I don't want to talk to you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Larry to me was, was great. Um, you know, Larry ran hot. I, I call it running hot. He, he is an intense guy when it comes to hoops. Um, he, he doesn't mess around for sure, but uh, we, we spoke the language of basketball. We had a mutual respect for one another. Um, so I was sad to be, to be honest with you, but I understand how this process works. And I think fans do as well. Sometimes we like to pretend um, that basketball is not a business, that college basketball is all about amateurism, but it's not. There is a business aspect to it where people, all coaches eventually get, uh, are hired to, to be fired or they eventually move on. So, um, you know, him coaching for almost a decade is a good run. I consider that, um, you know, in college basketball, it's just like Sean Miller, who was under all, all sorts of turmoil at Arizona. I think he'd been coaching there for 11 years. It's a good run. Um, so th- th- there, 
you know, not all these coaches can be Greg Popovich and coach one team for 25 years, right? Yeah. So um, I was sad, but I also understand what Utah is trying to do. Um, there, was a, there was a money component too. I always say, Trevor, that uh, success is often determined by your expectations of something. So if you don't expect something to be great and it ends up being okay, you're like, all right, that was, that was awesome. If you expect it to be the best and it falls short second or third or fourth, then you're disappointed. Right. And so I felt like Larry Kraskoviak was one of the highest paid coaches in the country and in the conference. And because of that, the expectations were so high, he wasn't meeting those expectations. And so I understand that that's probably more the reason that he got fired than the fact that he's a coach. Throughout the whole process, it ended up taking, you know, a couple of weeks. There were, there were some talks with Alex Jensen and Johnny Bryant who are both in the NBA as assistants. Obviously both chose to stay where they're at in New York and Utah. And then they they went and got Craig Smith uh, from up in Logan, a 90-minute drive down south from Utah State, and he's now taken over. He had three great years as the head coach of the Aggies, turned turn that program around immediately. What do you think of that hire? So I, I love it, and here's why. Um, so some coaches have track records of turning one program around, right, and they often will get a chance to, to you know, get hired and do it again. Um the the amount of coaches who have turned around two programs is pretty short. The fact that he's done it at South Dakota and Utah State is really impressive to me. If he were just at Utah State, I'd be like, yeah, it's a good hire, but like I, I I still the jury's out. The jury is in, the verdict is in. He knows what he's doing. He can build culture, he can coach basketball teams. So um, you know, I'm super excited for Utah for this for this new start. Certainly, um, Craig Smith's first order of business is the recruiting um, level, the recruiting component to this whole thing. You and I both know that the lifeblood of all college basketball programs is the talent. Um, coaching your X's and O's are important, but I would, if we're going to write out a list, your X's and O's are probably third or fourth um, on that list of what makes a college basketball program successful. Um, so, he needs to go out and and get some really good players. And if he's not getting, you know, four or five star players, he needs to be able to develop those three stars into really good prospects, uh, like all the best coaches in the country uh, tend to do. So he's got his work cut out for him, though, Trevor. I, the Pac-12 is is always a tough conference, although it has been struggling up until this past tournament. It yeah, has been struggling. <laughs> yeah, it had been yeah. struggling for many years. Um, this past tournament was amazing. I'm super proud of the Pac-12 for what they did. But, you know, even in a quote-unquote down year of the Pac-12, you still got some monster programs, some big-time coaches. And even if these programs aren't ranked in the top 15 every single year, these programs like Oregon, UCLA, USC, Arizona, they're getting NBA-caliber players every single year. So if Utah wants to hang in there and have a chance – they need to get some NBA caliber talent in here as well. One of the challenges that have come up when when they announced that Craig Smith was going to be the head coach is he's going from the Mountain West to the Pac-12. That's a pretty significant jump when you're having to prepare for you know Pac-12 teams rather than you know Mountain West teams, where you know Pac-12 anyone can beat anybody on any, any given day. And in the Mountain West, you kind of have an idea of who's going to be in that title game and you know things like that throughout, but. 
one of the things too is that, and we'll end up talking about the portal later on, is that he ended up bringing in three guys from from the Mountain West, and David Jenkins, Raleigh Worcester, and and, and Marco Anthony. Is that going to be a challenge when you're bringing in Mountain West guys into the Pac-12 and try to expect them to play at Pac-12 level right away? It is. There's no question about that. Um, I'm familiar with some of those players and their skill sets, um, and I don't expect any of them to come into the Pac-12 right away and, and light it on fire. But what what Coach Smith is trying to do, Trevor, is there's got to be some sort of continuity that he's got to be able to um, – uh, to try and instill in his team, right? He's a brand new coach with a new roster. Well, at least he can ease that transition a little bit by bringing in some of his own guys. But, you know, to your, to, to the point I made before, he's, he's going to need to bring in, um, you know, some PAC 12 level guys. The other comment I'll make is look, th- there has been many other coaches that have been brought from, if you want to call the mountain West, a mid-major conference, if you want to, um, that have been successful all throughout the country, but definitely in the Pac-12 uh, even as well. You know, like Nick Cronin came from Cincinnati. It's a basketball school, but Cincinnati is not a total basketball powerhouse. They don't they don't get four- and five-star prospects every year. That's, that's a fact. Dana Altman, before he was at Oregon, was at Creighton, and they played in the Mountain West. Creighton's now in the Big East, but when Dana Altman was coaching, they played – excuse me, uh, not in the Mountain West, but the, uh, the Missouri Valley, excuse me, the Missouri Valley Conference. And people were doubting whether or not Dana Altman could pull it off at Oregon, what he did uh, with Creighton at the, in, in the Missouri Valley Conference. So there are certain, you know, kind of uh, templates – uh, we've seen coaches do that before, but uh, yeah. So I like I, I believe that Craig Smith it is interesting that he's gone from uh, from the Dakota, South Dakota, to Utah, which is definitely a step up. This Utah State had um, it has a nice basketball tradition, but now he's making that that graduation step uh, to Utah and the Pac-12. But I, I like the progression. I think Craig Smith has learned a little bit on each step along his uh, along the way. He's ready for this challenge. He's not going to be overwhelmed. I want to touch on the the uh, transfer portal. It's something that has absolutely slammed mainly college basketball. It's also hit you know college football and all that too. But upwards of fifteen hundred entries just in this off season alone is absolutely bizarre. And Utah has a handful of them. I mean, two of them came back in, in Riley Batten and in June. Timmy Allen's gone. Plummer's gone. Uh, Pella Larson put his name into the portal. There's there's a chance he could come back, but I mean we don't we don't really know. And also Ian went into the portal as well. But then you also bring in four guys from, from the portal, and Gabe Madsen, uh, Raleigh Worcester, Marco Anthony, and David Jenkins. Are you a fan of this, this transfer portal that is absolutely taking over college basketball? I'm not a huge fan of it in general, but here's what I'll say. I have always believed that kids who go to a school and then their coach either gets fired or leaves for a better job. I have always believed that in those special circumstances, players should have should be allowed to transfer without having to sit out a year. Because, you know, let's be honest, a lot of the kids are they're recruited by the coaches and the coaching staff. And they go there, you know, part partly because of the school, but also because of that relationship that they built with that coach. And I just think it's totally unfair that a coach can just book it and leave for millions of dollars. And the kid, if he wants to leave, has to sit out. It just made no sense to me. So I've always felt that that rule was wrong. However, I don't want this to turn into free agency. Like if I'm not playing enough my freshman year, sorry, coach, I'm out of here and I'm going to go somewhere else. And then it makes it just really difficult for coaches and programs to build any sort of continuity and positive culture. Um, and I think it just rewards like 
you know, like some kids have to wait their turn. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. Um, you have to go through some of that adversity to, um, to kind of come out stronger on the other end. And I fear maybe I'm just the old man, get off my lawn, but I fear that if we just allow kids to transfer anywhere they want to and not sit out, we are rewarding them for not like not being mentally tough enough to grind it out and figure out a way to get more playing time and work harder. And, and so that, that's what I worry about. But the other side of this, Trevor is look, we've been dealing with this transfer portal thing for a while now. It's just hit an all time high. Now, now it's like, Whoa, there's like over 1500 kids. That, that's a lot, but this has been, this shouldn't be surprising to a lot of people who follow college hoops. There have been over a thousand kids in the transfer portal almost every single year. <laughs> For the last several years in the Pac-12, you know, I, I have some numbers, um, you know, that I've gathered as a broadcaster, Trevor. And, you know, I asked the, uh, one of the, the stats guys at Pac-12 Network. I said, hey, can you give me the numbers of the last five years? How many kids have transferred uh, in? So, like, not, not transferring out, but have transferred in. And the numbers are huge. In just five years, Oregon has had 11 players transfer in, in five years. Cal has had eight players. Arizona State, six. Arizona, 11. Right? So, um, Utah, if you're wondering, only four. They were on the lower end. There's only one team in the entire Pac-12 conference that has not had a player transfer in. And you could probably guess who that is, right, Trevor? Trivia time. Ooh, trivia time. Stanford? Yes, Stanford. It's just the academics are too rigorous. Yeah. Like the, the admissions, they won't let these kids in, mm-hmm. right? So anyway, Stanford's the only team that has not had a player transfer in. So this transfer portal allows you and Craig Smith to rebuild a program in one to two years where it would have taken at least three to turn a program around. The whole Stanford thing, I mean, you've obviously got a, a Stanford education, right? And you know, you were you were talking about, you know, players who don't play as a freshman, then they leave and all that. How long did it did it take you to become an all American at Stanford? It's a good question because I was a McDonald's All American. Um, mm-hmm. and for the listeners who don't know, uh, if you're a McDonald's All American, you've been rated as a, as a top twenty-five national player uh in the country. So when I went to Stanford, I was expected to be you know, one of the best freshmen in America. And yet, Trevor, I did not start the first two months of the season. Uh, We were ranked in the top 20 in the country. Mark Madsen was our senior All-American that year. Um, And Mike Montgomery was my head coach. And I had a senior who was playing in front of me. And I think even if the senior was sitting right next to me in this interview, he would say, like, yeah, Casey was more talented than I was. But, like, I had – four years in the weight room and I had four years of learning Montgomery's system. And I was a much better defensive player than Casey was. And I would say, yeah, probably. Um, and coach Montgomery, it, I wanted to start Trevor. I was like, I want to play all 40 minutes. I want to start. And coach Montgomery was like, now we're going to bring you up the bench. Um, you know, show us like, you, know, you got to prove it every day in practice. And I did that. And eventually in our second pack 12 regular season game, I finally got my first start in Corvallis, Oregon, um, and then I started the rest of the year and ended up being our leading scorer. Um, most of that was off the bench. The first half of the year, I was our leading scorer off the bench, um, but I earned it. I'd never once thought about transferring, and it would have been a gigantic mistake had I done that. So, I, you know, take it from me. Like, it's okay not to have everything you want right when you step on campus. You're going to have to earn a little bit. 
Well, not only that, you you know, a, a coach that you went to Stanford because of and trust in him and it all, it all ended up paying out. Yeah, but like being honest, I was mad at Coach Montgomery. We had many discussions about it. It wasn't it wasn't all honky dory rainbows and and, and sunshine. It, I was definitely frustrated, but we worked through it, and it made me a more mentally tough athlete. As far as the portal goes, do you think that this could be a permanent thing where we have upwards of fifteen hundred entries every off season? So. Yes. Um, I think this year is really unique coming off the pandemic. Um, So I think this might be the height of it, but I do believe that we're going to be looking at anywhere between 1000 and 1500 could be anywhere in that range. But yes, I do believe that this is going to be more, uh, more normal than it ever has been before. And then what would you change about the portal to make it better? for for college teams and college players well again uh like i I don't think we should allow kids to transfer uh for strictly basketball reasons um without having to sit out a year i and and i'm in the minority on that too um a lot of look i i am pro player i i am i'm pro player but um, so I, I do believe that uh, a kid should have the opportunity to petition. Like, let's say the coach doesn't leave, but there are circumstances that make total sense to allow a player to transfer and not have to sit out. And they would have to explain those rules. That to me is totally fine. If you can write a petition and, and explain your special circumstance, I think we should grant or the NCAA should grant those if they are legitimate. What I'm saying is, I don't think that we should just allow players to transfer here and there just for basketball purposes. Um, I, I think it's just a slippery slope, but I think it's, we're already there. So who cares what I think, but you asked me what I would change about it. Um, that, that's, that's kind of what I would change. I, I, I think going to the extreme and letting everybody transfer whenever they want to is a little bit much, but where we had it before this year was not the right answer either. Somewhere right in the middle. I know that there's a uh, a Pac-12 commissioner opening if you're interested in applying no. for that. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know if there's a lot of people who really want that job. As far as Utah goes, as you look at it, and, and you know we're sitting here May 6th, and a lot, and a lot can change then, but we, we have a good idea of what the core players are with Brandon Carlson, Riley Batten, and then obviously those four transfers coming in. And with Craig Style. Where do you kind of see Utah finishing among the Pac-12? Just as an early look, I mean, I'll end up getting you on prior to the season as well, and we can hash this out again once, you know, the roster is more set and as far as the schedule. But as far as just the Pac-12 and of what you see right now here on May 6th, where do you see Utah? I have no idea. Um, there's there's no way to really know. Um, you know, the, the loss of Timmy Allen is a huge blow. I mean, he was their Mr. Everything. Um, you know, Alfonso Plummer was, uh, was incredible in stretches as well, but he certainly wasn't as consistent as you would like him to be. Um, you know, those two guys were, were pretty dynamic. Um, Brandon Carlson is one of my personal, like, we always call them breakout stars. Like who do we think is going to take that next big step? Um, to me, Brandon Carlson is, is really on that list. He played less than 25 minutes a game. Um, and averaged almost double-digit uh, points per game. But I just – I think 
he has so much potential to to be an inside outside threat on the offensive end um and he also has really nice instincts as a uh, defensive rim protector and just kind of a smart defender certainly is a skinny guy but uh you know every bigs are always like that bigs take a little bit longer to develop unless they're like total freak studs like DeAndre Aiden but most big guys take take a year or two or three to finally pop um I think that Brandon Carlson is in line to be that guy to, to really pop um, kind of like a, you know, like the, the most improved award. Like I, I could totally see it going to Brandon Carlson um, next year, but uh, look, there is so many unanswered questions about uh, Utah and we might not even like, there might be somebody who's on the roster now, Trevor, that's going to transfer. We don't know. And, and so so a lot of this stuff in in April and May is like, you know, let, let's roll some dice and see what happens. Um, unless you're like a UCLA roster, which is probably going to return to everybody, maybe except for Johnny Juzang. There is a lot of fluctuation going on with rosters right now. Um, so I, I'm going to kind of hit the pause button. Uh, we can revisit this question in about three months from now. We'll definitely have a better understanding then. But right now it's just a lot of stuff up in the air. Final thing on Utah, and then we'll switch gears to more Pac-12 stuff. Do you see it as a big challenge for Craig Smith, having basically a brand new team, mentioning the four transfers, and they still have three more scholarships left to to be handed out, whether that's through the portal, through the JUCO ranks, or from you know some, some of the signees who haven't picked up a team uh, yet as far as out of the high school. Do you see that as more of a challenge, even though there are veteran pieces coming in? Because remember, Utah had a, had one of the youngest teams in the entire country, two years ago, but with 11 newcomers, but one of them came from Juco. The rest came out of high school. Yeah, it certainly is a challenge. Um, you know, they got their work cut out. Um, I would say, you know, if there's one area that I would really like to see some improvement um, the most besides, you know, besides replacing what, what Timmy Allen, um, you know, his stats that are walking out the door, I would really like to see them improve their point guard production and whether that's, you know, Ryland Jones really taking a big step forward or whether that's a a new recruit that can help. Um, To me, Trevor, I've, I always start with the point guards. The reason why Oregon has been really, really good. uh, You know, the best team in the PAC 12 over the last 10 years is because they have really good guard play and Peyton Pritchard, was was awesome um you know the the reason um washington had that one good year that mike hopkins first year is because you know M- matisse thibel was basically the point guard on defense he wasn't the point guard on offense but he, he was, was good point guard on defense and they were one of the best defensive teams in the country because of that now they had Jalen noel as a shooting guard to score and stuff but like Again, that that point guard, that lead, either defender or offensive player, is just massive. I mean, UCLA, Tiger Campbell isn't a, a, an NBA stud to me, but he is a fantastic college point guard. He's steady, consistent, and that's why UCLA was relatively consistent. I know they lost their last five regular season games and were limping into to the NCAA tournament and then just flipped the switch and turned it around. But when you watch them in the tournament, Tiger Campbell had complete command of that offense. He controlled the tempo of games. And when I watch Utah over the last couple of years, 
They struggle with defending really good and athletic and strong point guards, and they don't really control the tempo, and that makes it difficult. If you want to play a certain style, you have to have a point guard that knows everything and can calm a game down or speed a game up. I'd like to see better point guard player from the Utes. Well, not only that, they also had many games where they had stretches of five, six minutes of not scoring or scoring just you know getting at the foul line rather than field goals and and really wasn't much of a perimeter team other than Plummer going off. Yeah, but you know, you could honestly say that about several Pac-12 teams, yeah. including Oregon State, who made that awesome run to the Elite Eight in in the NCAA tournament. You remember watching Oregon State in the regular season, their biggest um weakness, they'd go five minutes on offense without scoring a basket. I mean, that was a regular occurrence for the Beavers. Stanford, similar. They would go through droughts unless they can get the ball to Oscar to Silva. They went through massive droughts where they couldn't score because they couldn't shoot from the perimeter. So, you know, the, the if you think back over Larry Koskoviak's tenure at Utah, Trevor, the best team that they had had a fantastic point guard, an NBA point guard, and an NBA big. Now that's like that's when the stars and moons are aligning, right? You get an NBA point guard, an NBA big, and you're going to be a top 20 team in the country. But you cannot be competitive in the Pac-12 if you don't have a competitive point guard or a lead guard that can lead the way. While we're talking about Pac-12 teams, how crazy was that run for Oregon State? Just the fact that they were they, they were dead in the water, picked to finish last going into the season, had it rolling a little bit until they got to Vegas, killed it in Vegas and went clear to the elite eight. I mean, that's unheard of. It makes this much sense. Exactly. Sense, bro. Yeah. Um, the, the fact that, that Oregon state was even in the tournament blew my mind. Okay. The fact that they made the turn by winning the PAC 12 championship was like surprising enough. I was like, Oh my gosh, Beavers won the tournament. For them to even win a game in the tournament, I was like, wow, that's amazing. But for them to win, did they win three? Yeah, they won three games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They ended up be- beating the Bruins, which I was like, okay, you know, the Bruins are struggling. That's fine. But then they go on and beat Oregon. And I was like, okay. And then they go oh, beat Colorado in the championship. The, I'm talking about the NCAA tournament. They yeah. Won oh, yeah, that too. No, no, no. yeah, I, I was already the 12 seed. Yeah, I was already surprised at the Pac-12 tournament championship. Like, that blew my mind. I'm talking about for them to win even one game in the NCAA tournament was like, what? For them to win three? No, no. And this is no disrespect. It just means they did not prove capable of doing that in the regular season. They didn't prove it. Like there's no evidence there. You know, you could point to some other teams in the conference, Trevor. You'd be like, Hey, look, when they're playing at their best, they're, they're like Arizona state would be an example. Hey man, when Arizona state's like actually playing at their highest level, Remy Martin running all over the place, making threes, like they're really dangerous. No one said that about Oregon state. So for them to do what they did, like, you know, what changed their defense was really Really good. And Roman Silva stepped up to the play, was a, a, a big-time rim protector. Alatisha was a, like that kid. a rebounding machine. And then Ethan Thompson finally hit his stride. I thought he really struggled throughout most of the of the regular season being a scorer. Uh, Jared Lucas stepped up as a three-point shooter. 
Um, you know, so all their pieces really fit into place. And then the, the other thing that I noticed about Oregon State is, did you notice in the NCAA tournament, they got off to really good starts. Like in the first five minutes, the Beavers got a couple threes to go down and they started puffing out their chest. They got confidence early in those games, which really helped them kind of settle themselves. Um, and uh, you didn't see that in the regular season. They would often get down at halftime and have to come from behind. and They couldn't do it. There was one other coaching change within the conference other than Utah, and that was the Arizona Wildcats. Sean Miller's out, as you mentioned, after 11 years and just couldn't really get to the to the final four. He's able to get to the Elite Eight a couple times, but just could not win that, that, that really big game. And, you know, and then they also had the whole sanctions, you know, a lot of that, that stuff within the NCAA coming down on them too, where they had to do a self-imposed postseason ban, things like that. But one, were you shocked about Sean Miller getting fired? And two, do you feel like it was more about winning that, that he wasn't doing enough winning big games or was it more of those sanctions or was it maybe a combination of both? Clearly it was not because of the sanctions. The sanctions came down in 2017. (laughs) They had had that cloud, that FBI cloud hovering over them for many years. So if, if it were trouble with the sanctions, um, you know, obviously Sean Miller was sat down at a table across uh, across the way from the president of Arizona and had to explain himself. And obviously that explanation was good enough for the president. They really backed him. It wasn't like they were unsure. They came out and said, no, Sean Miller is our coach going forward. And they just went on as business as usual. So it, that that evidence leads me to believe that the reason that Sean was fired was because Arizona wasn't as good as they were in 2014 and 15. When you mentioned it, they get to back-to-back elite eights. Both of those teams end up losing to Wisconsin. Those those were the Wisconsin teams with Frank Kaminsky and Sam Decker. Yep. Uh, really good teams. But, uh, yeah, look, Sean Miller, similar to Larry Kraskoviak, did not get fired because he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, I believe that Sean Miller is a very good coach. Um, but the expectations at Arizona are sky high. And I think that after a decade, you know, y- you kind of now have to say, all right, uh, where is this program going? Is this the, do we need a fresh start? Every program in America who has a coach that is coaching longer than eight or nine or 10 years, they are asking that same question. Is it time for a new start or can this guy continue to, to keep us at a high level? And let's be honest, the last two years, Arizona has not really been that relevant in in college basketball, and they are a flagship program of the Pac-12 along with UCLA and Oregon. I would say those three are the top, and if the Pac-12 wants to be considered amongst the best power conferences in the country, those three programs need to be in the top 25 every single season. When that news came out, were you shocked that Sean Miller was fired? I was shocked at the timing. So yeah, like again, not shocked because honestly, I thought that he would have been fired long before. Yeah. Um, back back when the whole sanctions happened, right? Yeah. Or maybe a year after the sanctions happened, maybe when mm-hmm. they dug a little bit deeper yeah. and then, you know, um, like for, for the listeners right now, let's not uh, forget that Sean Miller had two assistant coaches either get, um, uh, one got arrested, but the other got removed because of NCAA violations. To me, that's, I mean, it's kind of like, okay, you know, uh, Sean Miller had nothing to do with either of those two. Like when, when that stuff was happening, I, I, I thought to myself, there's no way that he could still have a job after all this. But obviously there was a way they kept him. So 
to answer your question though, I was shocked at the timing now um, when I was anticipating that it would probably have happened two years prior. Do you feel like Tommy Lloyd can take the Wildcats to the level that frankly Sean Miller couldn't take them? I do, but I'm I'm not saying like I'm a hundred percent certain about it, if that's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's a swing. Um, meaning like a little bit of a it's a big swing that they're taking on Tommy Lloyd. Now, is Tommy as respected as any assistant coach in the country? Yes. Like I can say that with a, with 100% certainty, but he has never been a head coach before. Guess number one. Um, and it, it, there's a big difference between that seat sliding over that one seat. Uh, it's big. And two, there is massive expectations. It's not like Tommy Lloyd is going from the assistant at Gonzaga to uh, the head coach at a mid-major school um, or or even a lower mid-power conference school. He's going to one of the perennial powerhouses in college basketball. So he is going to be expected to recruit at a high level from day one, and he is not going to be given any slack. I mean, I know he has a contract, a long-term contract. I don't know exactly the details, but from fan base and from media, he's not going to be given a ton. He's not going to be given three years to turn Arizona around. He's going to be expected to do it right from right from the start. Probably doesn't hurt that he was with Mark Few for quite a few years, and and the Zags are pretty good. I mean, I know that they haven't won a title, but they've come pretty dang close a couple times. Oh yeah, they've they've been incredible. I, I know people want, want to talk trash a little bit about Gonzaga. Um, two national title appearances in the last three turn or four tournaments. That's um, no other program in the country except for Villanova can say that. So, um, you know, kudos to them. Uh, But, yeah, like, you know, again, Tommy Lloyd's been working with and under Mark Few, one of the best to ever do it. Um, But it doesn't mean that, you know, he he is Mark Few. There's been a lot of instances where, you know, the, the assistants, they just don't have that it. And that's the part. Like, I know Tommy Lloyd can coach basketball, Trevor. I know that. I know that he has seen what a good program does, a program that develops good culture, that that recruits. Let's give Tommy Lloyd the credit, um, a, a lot of the credit. From I have a brother who coaches uh, Division One basketball, and he, he claims that Tommy Lloyd deserves more credit than Mark Few even for really digging in on some of these international players that have turned in two fantastic studs at Gonzaga. Tommy Lloyd's done a lot of work there. Now credit Mark Few for coaching and developing those guys as well and having a great system, but Tommy Lloyd's done that. So will he be able to do that uh, at Arizona? I think, I think that's the, that's the skill that translates, right? If you're an assistant coach, but you're a grinder on the recruiting trail, that's a skill that's going to translate. It's the it, the dealing with the media, the developing trust with your star players, um, to be able to handle multitasking, um, talking to different boosters and fans and players. And there's a lot that goes into being a head coach. Um, and Tommy Lloyd has not proven that yet. Doesn't mean he can't do it, but that's where the risk comes in. That's the part that I just don't know of yet. Final thing, and then I will cut you loose so you can go back to being a grill dad. If there's one Pac-12 school, I, I'd say, Casey, one Pac-12 school that you're just going to follow and that you're really interested to see how that program comes together over the next three or four months, who would you pick? Well, uh, is Stanford on the list? I mean, I'm on. Anybody's on the list as long as they're within the Pac-12. So Stanford to me is really interesting because they're going to lose a ton. 
right? So they were on the bubble for most of the year. They ended up losing uh, five straight games, including uh, f- uh, first first game in the Pac-12 tournament to Cal. Um, and like 10th place in the conference. Yeah. that's And for the record, it's the second year in a row they've lost yeah. in the first yeah, round of the Pac-12 tournament yeah. to Cal. Not mm-hmm. great. Um, Jared Haas certainly probably feels a little bit of pressure that he's got to turn this thing around really quickly, but it's going to be difficult. They just lose Oscar De Silva to the pros. Dejon Davis has transferred. He's, he's now going to transfer to UW. So actually going to be playing against uh, Dejon. Um, Zaire Williams, their freshman who had a very up and down year, but was really, really talented. He's off to the NBA. So, like you're talking about a, a team that was gutted, really. I mean, uh, Jaden Delaire, Bryce Wills, if, if they come back, which, you know, there's no word yet on, on whether or not they're going to enter, enter the transfer portal or not. I don't even know. They have a lot of holes to replace. They are bringing in Harrison Ingram, a McDonald's All-American. Um, he'll definitely help. But that is one program, you know, like we talked about. They don't get a lot of transfers. In fact, they had zero. They've had zero transfers. So how are they going to be able to rebuild so quickly after losing so many key pieces? Are they just going to fall off the map? Or is Jared Hass and his coaching staff going to get really creative and find a way to replenish that roster? Because right now, to me, Stanford is one of those teams that should be in that mix of top four, top five teams every year in the Pac-12, and they haven't been. And so, to me, a really important season for them. And, uh, yeah, obviously I have a personal connection, so I'm going to be watching them as well. But I, I just think in general, Stanford, their program and where it's at and where, where it should be, where it could be, is a really interesting thing. And this summer, Trevor, is going to be massively important to see what kind of guys they can get there. Is it safe to say that his seat's getting a little toasty? Yeah, I mean um, – you know, I never like to say uh, that, you know, coaches should be out – um, but yeah, I think, you know, he, uh, I don't know how long his contract is, but they have not made a tournament. I think it's fair to say, and, and if coach Hass were with us right now, um, he's done some really, really nice things, but I think it's fair to say that he's been there five years and they have not made the tournament one time. It's been a, it's been a disappointment. I think that is fair to say. Um, it's also fair to, to give him uh, some more time and see if he can turn it around. But uh, certainly Stanford, their standard is making or at least competing uh, for an NCAA tournament berth every year. It's crazy how it's already been five years. I can't believe that because it seemed like yesterday I was texting you saying, what do you think of Jared Haas being hired at, at Stanford? Because when that when that coaching change happened, you and I were communicating quite a bit on who you wanted. Like I was asking if you were going to go for the job. It, it Time really does fly, Trevor. Uh, Andy Enfield's been at USC for eight years. I mean, that's what? yeah, eight years. Just like yesterday, Florida Gulf Coast had that run. <laughs> Yep. So it's, it's pretty remarkable. So, and, and Bobby Hurley has been in Arizona state for six years now, I think, or going into a six year, which anyway, so a lot of entertainment out of Bobby Hurley, just watching him freak out at the referees and not get technicals. That, that is a skill. It is. It is a skill. He's a special dude. We love him. Well, Casey, it's always good to catch up with you. We'll definitely do this again. I really do appreciate you carving out the time. My pleasure, Trevor. Have a great day, man. All right, there you go. That is former Stanford, all American Fox sports, a Pac-12 network analyst, Casey Jacobson here on the Crimson Corner Podcast and the KSL Sports front page. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. 
I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.